0: I want to sit and have a gung-fu tea session with Snoop Dogg.
1: (laughs) Oh, drink tea every day, yes. You're listening to Hot Leaf Juice, the tea community podcast. Hey listeners, thanks so much for downloading this episode. So this time I'm going to talk with Elise Peterson of the company t TLET is a wholesale tea company, so they don't sell directly to uh, regular consumers. Uh, but let's a really interesting concept, and I'm really glad I was able to talk with uh, Elise about this. So they're a company that exists to connect small tea farmers with tea buyers in the U.S., so these are tea buyers who would not normally uh, have the time or resources to source their own tea, which is its own full job. As we well know, as <laughs> listeners of the podcast well know, sourcing tea is a whole a whole job. So these are buyers who don't have the resources uh, to source. Uh, but they are interested in selling the high-quality single-origin tea that uh, people really want. and is getting more and more popular. So Tea Lead is kind of like a uh, farmer's market. She connects uh, buyers to small independent farmers uh, depending on what's a good fit what's a good price Uh, and they'll even set up video conferences with the farmer Uh, they follow something that's been popular in coffee the last couple years uh, called direct trade Uh, so as I talk to Lisa about this you know we also talk about her her start in TLAT and her journey to Get to where the company is now and what her background is. And, and we talk a lot about what her thoughts and concerns that she has for tea as an industry right now and tea as a cultural product in the West. We talk about how tea is talked about and how tea is presented in the media. Uh, you know, Lisa is very out there and really active in the world of uh, tea, promoting tea out there, and she just has such a great interest and very clearly a passion for good tea and good food, and that, that really comes across in this recording, and I'm really glad to have had a chance to talk to her. It's a really cool episode. It shows you some about behind-the-scenes stuff, about how tea is traded with somebody who really, really cares about it. You know, and as always, our great music you're listening to is provided by Equity Slate. If you want to hear more beats like this, uh, check out the links in the show notes. Other than that, uh, let's get to it. Did you find anything interesting
0: yeah yeah some uh, kombucha and um there was a matcha producer there uh, that we'd never met in person before and it was nice uh you know to meet them and to uh, to see what's what's going on with them and hopefully we'll get to have uh, uh a meeting with them you know in our tasting room here. so a
1: producer that's like me like somebody that buys tencha and then has a mill i guess
0: um nope they just buy tencha and or buy matcha and just sell it here in the united states
1: oh okay a little simple even even simpler than that okay cool
0: yeah that's usually how matcha is done there's no grinding going on in the u.s at least not yet Mm -hmm. i think that might be a uh a a move you know coming up next
1: i mean do you think that's you know, you, I'm sure you've visited a heck of a lot more uh, tea farms and processing f- facilities than I have. Do you think that there's probably a, a good reason for that? In the, the, the reason that hasn't been the case right now, so far, like uh, perhaps tension doesn't travel well, or I mean, obviously tea has to be uh, processed wherever it's wherever it's picked. Right, you, you get like a six-hour, eight-hour clock on that on those leaves before they start to really oxidize. Uh,
0: yeah. Um, I mean. matcha just recently started taking off in the u.s so it's not like there's a lot of history of market opportunity for matcha but now that it has of course there's an interest in getting it more fresh and you know more high quality but the infrastructure that's needed for doing grinding here it's not simple it's not like okay yeah i'm just going to get a small hand grinder and go at it. I mean, and even one of those small hand grinders is going to set you back a couple thousand dollars. Once you oh, really? It and then, yeah. So, um, you know, I've heard of some projects, some startups that are trying to, to specialize in doing that. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see if, you know, a, a larger matcha company from Japan invest in setting that up. It, it's going to happen it's going to happen but it's actually quite easy and it's the most ideal because how matcha works is it gets harvested in the spring but then you have to uh, put it in like refrigerated temperatures um, and let it age for at least eight months seven eight months and then you can pull it out and start grinding it as matcha but uh, the longer you let it age the more complex the flavors become so you know, there's, there's a bit of quality, uh, just in the aging of it, but, um, you know, so that's ideal. You can bring it into the U S let it age here, um, and then grind it upon order because yeah, once you, you let it age and the longer it age, it's good. But then once you grind it, you've got like a, it's a ticking time bomb. You got to get it out. Yeah. So,
1: so do you know what's happening? Um, I guess, chemically with the refrigerated aging,
0: I can't tell you exactly. I've I've read it before and I understood the dynamics of it, but I, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I haven't I haven't done it myself. Like usually, when it comes to like uh, scientific processes, uh, I I really only attach to like ones that I've like done a couple of times, like with my own hands and seen the process. So you know, with cooking, for instance you know once you cook like you totally understand you know because your hands were in it and you're totally handling mm-hmm. it but uh with this i i haven't done that unfortunately and you know but maybe one time soon i will because uh i i wouldn't be surprised if we end up getting involved in that trend of bringing tencha and grinding upon order here rather than bringing the the matcha ground in from japan already
1: that sounds like such a cool project. Uh, what's your background, like educationally, like you bring, speaking of, I guess, science and, and the background people, background knowledge people bring to, to tea, you know, how did, I guess, where, how did you get your start, uh, you know, in in, a, in education before you got into tea?
0: I'm a food scientist.
1: Well, that's right up the, that's right up the, the tea's right <laughs> up your ending, huh? okay. <laughs> Jeez, I can't think of a more uh, relevant <laughs> I can think a more <laughs> relevant background. That's so cool. I didn't know that about you. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Um, yeah, I was like when I was younger, uh, like high school, I was really interested in food. Actually, to be honest, the reason why I was interested in food was because I had an eating disorder. Um, I was anorexic and um, I ended up becoming aware of what I was doing uh, very, soon, very soon. So it wasn't like an eating disorder that really... Negatively affected my life. Uh, I was I was very much into athletics, and tennis. uh, So being anorexic didn't take long for me to finally say, "Whoa, this is not right for my body." And um, uh, I then became like intensely interested in food and like the nutritional uh, makeup of food. And you know, rather than being anorexic, I was still pretty. I was I was young, and you know, like every teenager, obsessed with. Society and in in what I was supposed to look like and be like. So of course I was still having some body image issues. Uh, so instead of being anorexic, which I knew was just not good for me, I just didn't feel well. Like I would faint while I was playing tennis. So like I, I learned very early on that wasn't right for me. But what I did find that was right uh, was being really into in tuned with what I was eating. So reading labels. So yeah, I I was a type like in the grocery store reading all the labels and reading all the ingredients and. Um, you know, learning about different ingredients and then learning how to cook. I became very interested in cooking and uh, making meals for friends and for family and and people and just found this great joy in seeing someone eat something that I I made. So when I I went to my college counselor and, and, you know, they're trying to um, figure out what you need to study in school, what you should sign up for, i uh, you know, told them about my interest in food. I had already, uh, had an interest in science and math. And so they kind of merged those two things together. They put it into the computer and I guess it spit out, you know, uh, it was actually dietetics is what it spit out. And they told me, oh yeah, you know, you, you could be a nutritionist and you can consult with people on their diets and work in the hospitals and, um, you know, work on a food, work with food on a daily basis and positively impact people's lives. And, So I was like, okay, cool. So uh, I started in dietetics. So that's like to become a dietitian or, you know, nutritionist. I went through my first year in that program and uh, just taking like the prerequisites and everything. And and then I had to take this introductory course where they brought in speakers, uh, you know, dietitians to speak to the class and talk about their journey and what our future careers will be like. And that class did a really good job of scaring me away from the world of dietetics because they all worked in hospitals. You know, I had this like ideal in my head that I'd be able to like open my own practice and just like work with people on food and cook food with them and talk about nutrition. And no, that's not how it works. Like everybody was working in hospitals. Uh, you have to work in a hospital actually to get your certification. You have to work at least one year and in a hospital. And uh, that just sounded like a horror story for me because like it was a very common story among all the different speakers that once you're in the hospital, you may be very passionate about your work and passionate about helping people, but you're always going to be second to the medical doctor and the medical doctor is not paying attention to the nutrition and they're just giving quick fixes to the patients, uh, pills, medicines. That are fixing them quickly and easy, you know, fixes, while the nutritionist is really trying to make some lifestyle changes for the patients and helping them uh, for a longer time than when they're just in the hospital, like fixing their, their ailment right now, but trying to make some lifestyle changes that would help them uh, sustain some long-term health. Uh, But no one likes being told that they have to eat more vegetables, you know, when they're in that Uh, stressful of a situation, they'd rather just hear the doctor tell them, oh no, just take this pill twice a day and you'll be fine. Uh, So uh, I knew I didn't want to do that. And so uh, within the same department of the dietetics department was the food science department and had learned that I could study the same stuff. I mean, pretty much food scientists and dietitians, they study the same stuff. Um, You know, food scientists will, the last couple of years of their program, will study a little bit more um, engineering, uh, because, you know, we work in the food industry indus- industry. So you need to not only know how is the food interact in the human body and how do you need to formulate it and keep it safe, but also how do you produce it at mass? So we took a lot of like engineering classes and physics classes and, um, and, in dietetics, you take a little bit more of the health, you know, health and, um, healthcare classes in the end. Um, so yeah, I transferred over to food science. I was really happy. I loved studied it. I ended up working in the food industry even before I graduated uh, my freshman year. I actually scored a job at a dairy um, doing microbiology. Um, basically, I was their, their lab brat. I, I received all the samples of incoming milk and you know, pooled samples of the sour cream at different points during fermentation and pooled samples of the ice cream. And I would do all the microbiological tests on it to make sure that it's passing the the USDA standards and then um, quality control testing on taste and, um, you know, uh, bricks, which is like sugar content and the the solids and, and, and basically just like really fast testing of these products to make sure that they're meeting consistent quality control specifications so i was there for a couple of years and then i transferred from there to a um a sushi manufacturer so you know like those trays of sushi you can buy at the grocery store yeah yeah i worked for that factory
1: it was oh cool fun.
0: yeah it was super fun it was like uh continuous sushi roll making uh, I was a big factory, hundreds of employees uh, making these trays of sushi, and I was the, the quality control supervisor. So I was having to do, you know, test swabs on all of the food surfaces to make sure that proper sanitation was going on. I also did the quality control on, you know, products as they were growing through. And, and it was there that I started doing product development. Um, and, and that means uh, formulating. Uh, recipes for for what we were doing and um it it was at this job and doing this work which was exciting I loved it I I was working with food on a daily basis I loved it but you know like my projects were coming from the sales team and they would say all right we just uh, got an expansion of distribution to five more states uh, because it's a longer range away from where we are right now. Distribution's gonna be more tough, so we need to extend the shelf life another two days. How are you going to keep the avocados green for an extra two days? So now I'm working with a 10-day shelf life to keep avocados vibrant green and keep the rice from molding and, and, and keep it from you know getting slimy and, and, and bad tasting. So um, you know I ended up uh, having to use a lot of uh, chemical ingredients uh, to make those magical things happen, and that was when I started feeling like, wow, the food industry is not something that uh, is is right for me. You know, especially like the the non-organic, non-natural food industry. Uh, you know, we were we were using immense amounts of sulfites uh, to keep those avocados green, uh, and it just didn't feel right. It d- didn't feel right at all. You know, the the FDA's got all of these like uh, generally regarded as safe ingredients that you can use. uh, And there's different thresholds of how much you can use. Uh, Of course, there's like ongoing uh, clinical trials to find out what those thresholds are, but the the research is actually very limited. And uh, Mm. the FDA is approving the use of all of these things, of course, to make the industry happy, because that longer shelf life could mean a lot for sales. It could mean um, you know, getting more accounts and getting more distribution, uh, and you know they want to get that shelf life, no matter what, no matter what ingredients you use and what you're putting into the products. So, uh, I, I left that job to go work for an all-natural company. They did private labeling for Trader Joe's and Whole Foods. So actually, quite a few of the Trader the products inside Trader Joe's, I invented their formulas, I developed their recipes. That oh, was. Uh, so there's like a, a blue jalapeno cornbread that I helped work on. There was a couple of different like pasta. Um, it was dry mix. So that means that uh, it's pretty much anything that can be packaged in a bag and then packaged in a box. And then usually that would have like a recipe on the back where you would empty that, bo- that box into a bowl and add, you know, water and mix it then cook it you know, so like bread mixes, rice type of things, uh, mac and cheese, those types of things. Uh, we did all of their private label stuff. So essentially they, the sales team would come into my office and they, they'd put a, a box of Kraft mac and cheese on the desk and they would say, okay, we need you to replicate this uh, flavor profile and product profile, but it needs to be all natural and certified organic. So, you know, we would have to pretty much reverse engineer products and, and then find like the natural organic solution to them. And uh, it was fun, like again, working with food. I had this amazing kitchen space to work in and it was this huge kitchen and just covered in drawers. All of the walls just had drawers all over them with labels that had the different ingredients inside. So uh, pretty much like a huge library of every food ingredient that you could ever want to play with every spice, every it, it was all dry though, so it was like powdered milks and powdered proteins and 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 different cheeses. So a whole and, okay. Yeah, and then I got to just play in the kitchen and come up with these recipes. But when I say come up with a recipe, it means that maybe for two weeks straight, I would make ten different batches of brownies every day, tweaking the recipe just a little bit until you know you come up with the right recipe. So, uh, it was a lot of repetition, but but really fun. But you know, what was really interesting, I did at that job, uh, was I got the factory certified organic, it took me about six months to do. Uh, and and what I mean by that is uh, I did all of the administration work to certify the factory organic. So, USDA, uh, yes, USDA organic. Uh, the place was already pretty organic, like we were sourcing all organic ingredients, we didn't have any. Um, you know, inorganic conventional ingredients coming through. So it wasn't like we had to change how we were operating, but we had to develop all of the administrative systems of how we verify to the inspector that we're organic. So uh, I had to compose this notebook, you know, full of all these sections of how we're addressing different things. How are we, uh, managing the warehouse? So, uh, different, um, you know, organic ingredients don't mix with uh, conventional ingredients. How are we sanitizing the lines? So if we run something that's conventional through, uh, the machines, it, how do we sanitize things so that we can make it organic on the next run? How do we do our sourcing? I had to collect all of the certificate analysis for every vendor that we work with. And, um, It was about six months of my time, and I do admit that there was a lot of forging of signatures uh, for, you know, the day to day verifications like there was like a a huge minder of three years of data of uh, somebody signing off that all of these protocols were followed every day. We didn't have that paperwork, but I absolutely needed to get that certification. And so I had to like forge all these signatures to make sure that the paperwork was there. It was all paper. It's all it was, there was no action. We didn't change anything about how we behaved. It was just paper and it was six months of my time working full time, getting paid a healthy salary to, uh, to get the certification. And then of course the factory had to pay for the, the inspector to come in at least a couple grand for them to come in for two days and read all that paperwork and and verify that we've done it. Um, But like, I I think it was probably that experience of my food science past that jaded me the most. You know, because I I told you about the sulfites and the avocado from the company before, that jaded me pretty bad. But I figured, let me go to an organic company. This is the future. I, I need to be working for organic. And I get there and it felt phony. You know, it, I felt like the way that we were running our operation and the way that we were cost sensitive to things and we were buying ingredients that had probably flown around the world five times over by the time they got to us, like that didn't seem organic. I like, got that idea at that time, I had this idea in my head that organic meant sustainable. Not just that there's no chemicals in the agriculture, but that there's um, that there's consciousness in its distribution. There's consciousness in how the employees are treated. That there's um, you know consciousness in, in the amount of or in the nutritional uh, makeup of the products that you are making. You know, like we were putting just as much sodium in our products as you know the Kraft mac and cheese, but because it was certified organic it had this, like, healthy perception to it when it wasn't really that much more healthy. Everything was certified organic. That was pretty much it. So uh, I got really jaded on that, and uh, I knew I needed to to find a change, and um, I had a friend convince me to join the Peace Corps, and I had no, like... I volunteered before. I, I, I like being engaged with the community, but I had never had any what you would... Ca- call hippie tendencies prior to that but I signed up and um, I spent two years in Niger West Africa living in a mud village with no electricity no running water Uh, I was an agriculture volunteer so it was meant because I'd studied food and agriculture in college you know I was placed there and uh, that that really opened up my eyes and really inspired me onto the path that I'm on now Uh, Because in that community, you know, I went there with all these ideas of like, I'm, you know, one of the top of my class food scientists, I've worked in the food industry, I know how to preserve things, I know how uh, to to deal with food safety concerns, Uh, I'm totally going to go into this village and teach them how to preserve all their food and make food companies and this village is going to be awesome and they're going to like, totally build a future and inspire everybody around them. And I spent the first year with this thought in my head and I thought that if I just do every project that I possibly can and just like work my butt off and just do everything that it'll finally work and um, nothing worked. I I think I did eight projects in my first year, like as far as like school gardens and women's gardens and uh, trying to build wells out in the farms where they're Farming their their millet and sorghum and vegetables and um, nothing. What worked. was the
1: theme and the, what was the theme for like all these different projects? Sort of not agriculture.
0: Working? Oh, oh, not working.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, the people didn't want to keep them up. It's like I offered to do this project. I offered to build a garden for the school and the kids could manage it and then anything that's harvested from it they could eat or they could sell or whatever you know there's no uh food code there so it's kind of great you know if you would you anybody can sell anything they want so uh i set everything up for them i fundraised some money uh from some nonprofits uh to fund you know buying all the materials we would need and the seeds and everything and then once the project got up and running and i left it in the hands of the students it just got uh, abandoned because they didn't want to do it it wasn't it wasn't what they needed you know, and that's what I kind of learned. I'm like, oh, these people, they, they don't need this stuff. So I'm just going to stop doing it. I'm going to stop forcing stuff on them that they don't need. And so I ended up spending my second year. I was, I was really tired by this time. So I was like, you know, I'm, I'm a volunteer. I'm not working. Like I don't have a boss to be accountable to on like hitting certain quotas or, hurt, or hitting certain goals. So You know what, I'm just going to enjoy this last year that I'm here. I'm going to make friends. I'm going to work on my language skills. uh, And I'm I'm just going to chill out. Maybe I'll learn some recipes of how to cook some of the local dishes here. Like, that is my goal. I am not trying to change this village. And it's amazing how, like, in the second year, I did one project, and that project was quite possibly the most successful project and is probably still sustaining even to this day and um, yeah, I learned a lot from that experience that uh, and and that that year that I did that one project it wasn't a project that I thought up it wasn't something that I thought the village needed it was something that I, I ended up getting pushed to do from the people in the village that I was living in and the only reason why they felt comfortable enough to give me that idea and to push me to do it was because I just sat down and listened you know it's a big important thing in 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 the US especially in like your career life and your career culture that's not something that you're told to do you're told to work you're told to hustle you're told to get out and do something do it do it you do it you figure out and you do it uh you know, and, and what I learned is, no, chill out, sit down and listen and and talk, of course. But most importantly, listen. And it takes time. It takes a lot of time to do that. Um, but it's a lot more enjoyable. It's a lot more fun. Like The reason why I did it wasn't because I was testing the theory. Oh, let me listen and see what they want. And then, no, the reason why I did it was because I just wanted to chill out. You know, I just wanted to enjoy my time. And then things started coming together, and so ever since that experience, that's how I run my work. That's how I run my business. That's how I run my life. Is I just I'm constantly sitting down and listening. It's very important, um, and of course I hustle now. I work a lot. I work over 100 hours a week. I work a lot, uh, but you know it's it's just the busy work that I'm doing in that time. The the rest of it, like the business development that we do and the new ideas that come up that all comes from sitting and listening and you know so I'm leaving on this trip uh, to Asia our spring sourcing trip and that's what we do you know we don't we don't go around and tell all the tea producers what we're looking to buy and how much we're looking to pay for it and, and talk in business with people no we're, we're sitting drinking tea and eating good food and, and meeting people's families and um, just listening You know, because these these moments, that time that you spend doing that type of work is precious and you can't skip it. Uh, Of course, you can skip it, but then, you know, it's not going to be as uh, as uh, conscious. It's not going to be as uh, mindful of what's going on. and, And that's when, you know, businesses start going in a direction of what the market doesn't want. You know, the market being people. Well, you
1: actually have to have a relationship with your business partners. You know, you can, they're not just vendors, and it's not like you're not buying tea out of a catalog. You're buying tea from a farm run by by people. Mm-hmm. So I had a uh, speaking of farmers, I, I had a, a question um, about farmers. You know, you've had you've had the opportunity now to meet a lot of farmers, um, and I and I wanted to know, like, do you meet very many younger young farmers, farmers under the age of? 30 or a farmer under the age of of, of 40 and regardless of their age is there is there anyone out there that was processing or growing tea in a way that just was interesting or completely surprising to you that got you very excited about the future of tea
0: yeah of course so um i haven't calculated our average age of farmers and in the network that we work with uh recently in the like the past year but last year the average age was 37 years old. So majority of who we work with are young. And there's, there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, the main reason is is that what we're doing and uh, what attracts people to come work with us is we're doing something different. It's very risky what we're doing. So imagine that you, you grow up uh, making tea with your family, and then you um, you become the, the head of the family, and it becomes your farm, and every, it's, it's been done the same way since when you, grow up, you grew up, and, and that's how you sell your tea. So you make your tea, of course, so you're always gonna make the tea the same way, it's the heritage, but the selling of the tea was always going to this local place, and you always knew that 100% of your tea was gonna sell to this local place, uh, so you didn't have to worry about carrying extra inventory and selling it later. Like, you, you would sell all of it there. Um, it's comfortable. It's what you know. and But then uh, things start getting rough for you. And this started happening for tea uh, for the past uh, 30 years. So for the past, past three decades, uh, uh, the economic situation for tea farmers everywhere has steadily declined and actually declined even faster in the recent you know five years Um, and then it's just a matter of price market price you know so that place that you had always gone to to sell all of your leaf all of a sudden the price is not moving you you were paid five dollars a kilo last year and you're paid five dollars a kilo this year and 15 years later you're still paid five dollars
1: a kilo And these are usually brokers who usually, depending on the country and region, will sell it at auction. Again, depending on the country, perhaps. But those are usually the bigger brokers. Yeah, every country
0: is different. But, yeah, no, uh, it's not even brokers. It's it's the farmer themselves. You know, they make their leaf and then they take it to market. And every place the market's different. So, like, in India and Sri Lanka, there's a market. Kenya, like, pretty much all of, like, the, the British colonized places that had developed, you know, the tea industries they had set up this system of auctions. In Japan, uh, they actually sell their tea to the government. They sell their tea to a government uh, organization, it's called Japan Agriculture, it's a cooperative. It was built in the 1950s as a resource to help farmers because um, prior prior to that, Japanese tea was just consumed locally. You know, Farmers would just produce whatever tea would be consumed in their local community. There was enough supply and demand it was steady, it was happy for everybody World War II happens and then all of a sudden Japan's trying to catch up and at that time they were trying to emulate America You know, and, and that, that part right there, emulating America after World War II is another reason why we, chemical, agriculture chemicals are so prevalent in the tea industry Because thank God America developed agriculture chemicals, made everything super efficient and awesome everybody wanted to be like it so they started using it So America, uh, or the trend at that time was global, globalization, global commodities. You know, there's lots of people in the world. Let's sell our products to all the people in the world. And um, so now a farmer that was making his tea and then selling it to his local community all of a sudden had to sell his tea to the global community. And he didn't know how to market it. He didn't know how to, to do the quality control He didn't know, you know, that never is something he ever had to do before. Why would he do it? So the Japanese government developed an organization that would do all of that for them. And it was great at the time it worked. It was what the farmers needed. So basically the farmers could go into this Japan agriculture office, bring all of their tea and they would buy it. And the market price would change a little bit here and there based off of the dynamics that are going on in the industry. Um... And the farmers were always assured that when they took leaf there, hundred percent of it would get sold. They wouldn't have to worry about selling it. And then that cooperative, the government run cooperative would do all the quality control. They would do some blending they would do some refining. They would do the marketing and they would distribute the tea out and it worked. But then this problem that's happened in the past three decades is the, uh, the shift in consumerism in the world. And our good friends at Walmart have taught us a very important lesson in consumerism, which is you deserve the lowest price. Mm. And that idea has just propagated and it has become the culture of consumerism. And I say Walmart, they're not fully responsible for it. It's not just Walmart, but I, I, I would think that they're probably one of the biggest players that have have taught us this. And, and So that got into tea, you know, and if you wanted to get your tea onto shelves of Walmart or the equivalent, um, you had to get the lowest price and, and, and the more, the suppliers, they just satisfy the buyers and all of a sudden the buyers coming in, these were big buyers. They were coming in and guaranteeing to buy lots and lots of tea, big amounts of tea. Uh, but they wanted the price low, and everybody wanted the price low, so the price remained low, and that's okay. You know, price is going to go where the 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 price is always what the buyer is willing to pay. So you know, if the price the the buyer wants to pay a lower price, and that's what the price is. But where it affects everything is that the price remains low, but then the cost of production is always going to continue to go up. Always, it's natural inflation. Like you can't stop that from happening. Um, of course, some some producing countries have tried to stop that from happening by lobbying to keep labor wage low, labor costs low, which is pretty much the only cost that you can control. You can't control the cost of water. You can't control the cost of your agriculture chemicals. You can't control the cost of housing and building construction and infrastructure building. Like those those costs are always going to continue to increase. So over the past 30 years, the profit margin for a tea producer has just gotten smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller every year, where in a place like Japan, your profit margin is negative now. And, you know, you'll you'll see it when you go out to the tea fields of Japan. It's beautiful. The farmers still have a lot of pride in managing their tea fields. Like, they're beautifully manicured and well-maintained, and the farmers are out there working, but the farmers are like, in their late 60s and early 70s and still working back breaking work and but they're doing it every year they're cutting into their pension to continue making tea it costs more to make the tea than what they can sell it for in the market that's that's what i'm saying and and so they have to like cut into their pension savings to continue making tea but it's important for them to carry on that heritage so they continue doing it uh but Of course, they tell their kids, oh, you can't have a life like this. You go into the city, get a job. So they leave, and then the farms go feral, you know, Mm because the the family dies and no one wants to take over it. And land is such a finite resource in in Japan, they're not going to sell it. It's like gold, you wouldn't wouldn't sell your land. So instead, you just let it go wild. And, um, you know, we work with a lot of farmers in Japan. They're all younger. Uh, but the reason why that they're into it is is not because a lot of times they're not like children of uh, tea farm families. They they may actually be city city people that grew up in the city, educated, but then want to get out to the countryside and they intern on a tea farm and they fall in love with tea farming and they they hear about this problem that I just told you about and they say, no, we want to change this. We want to become tea farmers. But they can't buy land because there's no land for sale. So they end up leasing. They they lease the feral tea gardens. So they'll go into the cities and they'll find the owners of the wild tea gardens. And they'll negotiate a lease and say, okay, hey, you know, we're going to go put your land back into production. From the earnings that we make of selling the tea, you know, that'll pay our our, our lease to to be on the land. So, um You know, these these younger guys are starting to get into the game. They're learning the traditional processes. But of course, uh, forward thinking young people that know how to use YouTube and the Internet uh, are learning about these new things coming out, new trends and uh, new market opportunities. And they start doing innovative stuff and they start getting the attention of um, uh, some international buyers. But it's, it's not a guarantee. You know, these guys might set up a website and do a little bit of sales. And, you know, they can sell directly into the market, like through a Tlet like through through our website. But, you know, we can only move at most 15-20% of one of these farms supply. So then they end up sitting on the rest of it. Of course, for that you know 10% of their supply they sell it for a significantly higher price than any other local buyer is willing to pay them for so the cash flow is better but then they're still sitting on that extra inventory so you try to tell that to a tea farmer in their 60s or 70s you say hey stop going to that that Japanese um uh agriculture cooperative they're not paying you a good price for your tea they're still paying you five dollars a kilo why don't you uh, try to sell it yourself, and you can make, you know, a higher price for your tea. But you know, it's not guaranteed you'll sell all of it. It's really hard for them to go out outside of the path that they've been on because they're so comfortable with that. They're
1: well. It's been their entire generation. Yeah, yeah. Grown up post-war, so the, the, to them, these are just tea punks. You know, these are. Yeah. <laughs> these are. Yeah. So, and so to paint the to paint the structural picture uh, here. You, 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 and your, 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 your company, come in You and your company comes in at, at this point in the story, right? tealet com- reaches out to uh, uh, an outside the box uh, a quality tea farmer uh, in Japan or in wherever, and you provide. You know, I've heard you describe it in the past as a as a, a, a virtual farmers market. Is that is that still the is that still an accurate analogy?
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We're an online farmers market. Um, we only do wholesale distribution though. So we will, uh, let the growers, you know, sign up. Of course, there's a lot of quality control work that we get involved with. These are very small family owned businesses that don't understand the intricacies of the FDA, uh, food system here in the United States. They, um, don't really understand that how selling a quality product worked. I mean, for a lot of the growers that we work with, especially in India and Nepal and Sri Lanka, a lot of them never even had experience making tea. They've had experience growing tea, but they always sold the harvested green leaf to a factory that would do everything. And then even the tea that they would make in the factory wasn't a quality tea. It was like a commodity, you know, the most common one is the CTC, crushed hair curl. Mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter what quality is on that it just matters that you make as much tea as you possibly can because when you take it into the market you're not going to get more than two dollars a kilo for it so you got to make as much as you can but um, you know we work with them and, and, and help give them ideas and guidance on how they might make a better quality tea using their hands using you know small micro factories And then um, we import it and we we, we take responsibility for all of the FDA compliance and then quality control. So we will receive it in bulk, we'll inspect it and make sure that the, the tea is at the quality that they agreed to send to us. And then it gets listed up on our website and we will sell it to other tea businesses that are looking to do what's called direct trade, which is a new trend. Um, in the market, uh, providing transparency about where your products are coming from, how they're being sourced. So uh, we will accept the payment. And, you know, there's a lot of intricacies in how sourcing happens. Um, When you're running a small business, for the most part, our clients are small businesses. They're not very large businesses. They're a small tea house or cafe or small beverage distributor. And, Uh, They need the tea, but they don't have the time to, you know, travel to Asia every year. Uh, They want to pay with their credit card. Uh, They don't want to pay international wiring fees to pay their suppliers. It cuts into their margin and makes things a lot more inefficient for them. So uh, we make it as efficient as possible. For these buyers, and then because we have the tea already in bulk here, we're able to turn it around and get it shipped to them within three or four business days, uh, versus potentially two months when it comes to ordering tea. Uh, so, do
1: you airmail from your whatever facility that you buy it from? I guess.
0: Uh, usually,
1: yeah. And your states your stateside. Now you're in Vegas now, or are you, yeah. are, you st- are you still in Hawaii?
0: Yeah, we're based in Las Vegas, uh, we used to be in Hawaii, that's, that's where I was when I started and actually, I started this whole journey into tea because uh, I was working with tea farmers in Vegas and uh, actually started a small tea garden on Oahu, uh, but uh, when, when we started to do the wholesale business, uh, you know, distributing to these tea businesses the sales on that weren't the same as when we had started out doing retail selling directly to the consumer when you're selling directly to the consumer it's more important for you to be online and building reputation online you could do that from your computer you can be anywhere in the world and do that Um, but when it came to wholesale relationships face-to-face relationships became very important and so I had to travel often I would uh, go, you know, all across the mainland. I would do presentations at tea festivals and tea expo and uh, traveling from Hawaii is very time consuming and expensive. So usually if I had to go to, to New York for an event, then I would end up staying for at least a month and I would do a road trip all across the east coast to meet with other clients and to do sales meetings and whatnot just because I didn't want to fly back to Hawaii just to turn around to fly back to the mainland again for another meeting. Uh, So I found myself more away from the office than in the office in Hawaii and spending a lot of money and just not really efficient. So um, we looked at the map and decided that las vegas would be the most ideal location for us it has a great airport a lot of traffic of people coming through las vegas and we we had some friends from uh, when we had spent time in silicon valley that had moved here to be a part of the downtown project which is uh, the zappos shoe company was reinvigorating downtown las vegas and uh, attracting Silicon Valley companies uh, to to move to Las Vegas so we had some friends here and we decided let's move to Vegas and that was uh, three and a half years ago actually I, I drove in on the night of Halloween 2013 so uh, we've been here a while we've definitely integrated in the community here and take full responsibility for the crazy amount of tea culture that is just blossoming here it's really amazing um really happy to be here and it's been a, a good move for us you know i can easily move around to all of my meetings and you know even even traveling to asia is very efficient from here there's a lot of direct flights to the places that that we need to
1: go to so do you spend a lot of time with um with the the like the las vegas tea tea club scene uh you know i had george jaw on as a uh as a guest about two weeks ago uh yeah. or are you traveling to? M- <laughs> are you traveling a lot
0: Uh, it's a mix of both but if I'm here in town you better believe I'm at that event no matter how big or how small it is uh, I will be at all of them and every one of them and when I travel I will also go to their events no matter how big or how small they are even if it's just two of us sitting in a room drinking tea together it is not a waste of my time it is a very good use of my time and that's the key to what we do we're sitting and we're listening you know so uh, it's very important. Uh, there's, there is a pretty vibrant tea community that's here. Uh, a lot of the members that are part of that community and the leaders that are part of that community, um, we had put in a lot of time of sitting and listening uh, to get them activated and, and, and organizing. Uh, but, you know, um, there was some existing activity going on. A few people. I think you had George. You had him on your show, right?
1: Yeah, I did. He was a he was a blast to talk to. Him. Yeah, he's
0: fun. He's super fun. Yeah he he's been going at it since before I moved to Vegas, and I'm very grateful for the work that he's done and the foundation that he's laid here in Las Vegas for for tea culture. And uh, Naomi uh, Rosine from Joyce Teaspoon is also based in here in Las Vegas. And so when we moved here, you know, there was definitely an established culture. It was very small. Um, And there was no place And, and that's an important part for community and culture is that you need space. So at that time when they did meetings, they would have to do them in their home or they would have to do them in the park or something. There was no like tea house or there was no restaurant or space that was welcoming and accommodating to tea culture. But that has changed a lot since three years ago. Um, and actually where we met at the lucky dragon which is a Chinese casino that's recently opened here that's become kind of our premier location of gathering around tea culture and they have a tea house there and the whole hotel is kind of revolving around tea uh, we're really grateful for that um, and you know that hope tea that... bar is
1: superb that's a, that's a superb <laughs> tea bar that I was so happy to see look at the menu I, I wish I would have had more time to try more things on that menu but you were involved in curating that menu do you have like a relationship with the lucky dragon casino because they're pretty new right they're a year old less than that
0: less yeah they opened on january 3rd 2016 so even less than six months uh but yeah uh, tila is a strategic partner uh with lucky dragon uh meaning um you know they're they're a client of ours and they use our website to source teas from mostly chinese and some taiwanese tea producers their entire menu is direct trade every single one of the teas that they serve in cha garden has the information of tehua and origin and that's what they were looking for and um They met us and they said, wow, you guys are providing exactly the service that we need. Because here you had um, a first of its kind hotel being launched here in Las Vegas. The investors and the board are all located in China. And uh, their idea and goal was to build um, a property here in Las Vegas that would represent authentic Chinese culture uh, premium Authentic Chinese culture and attract Chinese clients to go there and gamble and eat and, and whatnot. And their theory was they wanted a world class tea house to be there and to be almost a brand identity, to be an attraction to bring people into there. But then you had the operators here in Las Vegas that were actually building it and actually bringing the partners in and executing. And these um, are American people. Of course, they've been to China several times. They work with, you know, Chinese businesses all the time. They've experienced tea in Chinese culture, but they don't know it intimately. And they didn't even know where to start as far as hiring a consultant or hiring like a wholesaler that would be able to help them. Uh, but thank goodness, you know, the, our connection got made and that was made from a very random uh, introduction from uh a what do you call the acquaintance that I had made in Las Vegas and the only reason why I made that acquaintance was because I was sitting and listening uh, so I'm um, again grateful for that that activity uh and they they um have become a strategic partner for us and we have gone definitely above and beyond our usual activities as a, you know, tea supplier uh, to train their staff and curate their list and work very closely with their management team and staff uh, so that they can, you know, meet their goal of having a world-class tea house for, you know, the U.S. standards, if not, you know, world standards, Uh, but also uh, for our goal. And our goal is to propagate tea culture and to make tea culture mainstream and 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 really the next big opportunity for a specialty tea is going to be food service and hospitality. And as of right now, tea is the most neglected thing in hospitality. Like you'll go to a five star diner and they will have the best meat and the best wine wineless wine pairings and single malt scotches and like all these very high-end artisanal crafted things but then you ask for tea and they bring out a box of tea bags for you and
1: (laughs) yeah i've been there i'm like okay
0: thank you and it's the way it is it's it's um It's how the hospitality industry has been educated in the U.S. and America didn't have a tea culture, so it's okay. That's where we were, but we want to try to move it forward, and we see Lucky Dragon as a platform, you know, to showcase how really fine tea can be done and it doesn't necessarily have to be Chinese tea and Lucky Dragon is only Chinese tea because they're trying to be authentic Chinese but um, you can do fine tea from all other origins uh, but you just need to have an attention to uh, to craft and to quality and appreciation of it and just uh, not a fear of the service element that that seems to be the the big limiting factor for expanding into food service is that all of these managers and restaurant owners and you know restaurant people they they feel like the service element of tea is too complex and hard to manage and they won't be able to train their staff properly there's such a high turnover rate so they can't train the staff and They just can't bother with it, all the extra teapots and these things. They can't bother with it, so the teabag just does it. And the teabag's got really pretty writing on it and marketing, so it doesn't matter how the tea tastes. The teabag fits. Uh, It's easy. But I think, uh, so Lucky Dragon, if you saw their tea bar, it is a very complex, crazy thing for a bar to be doing. They've got tea trays. They've got... Rows and our shelves and shelves of. Ex- it's
1: like I'm at home. I was I, I was so happy. I was like, it's like I'm at home. This is just what my living room is like.
0: <laughs> you know, they've got very breakable teawares, um, some expensive teawares. Um, they had to educate all of their staff on this list of 52 different teas. Um, but they're doing it, and people are appreciating it, and the media is loving it. You know, anytime. Uh, there's a write-up on Lucky Dragon they always mention their tea program and I want other, you know, people in food service, especially in fine dining to see that and feel ashamed for the tea program they have and and seek out, you know, that education and seek out uh, someone to help them elevate their tea program and, you know, it's going to be great for our company it's going to be great for people like you for uh, even enthusiasts that are maybe like on the fence about I hate my job but I really love tea I wish I could have a career in tea like very soon you know there's gonna be a demand for people that know about tea to to go into these places and and help them uh and and be almost what 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 we saw 30 years ago with the uh wine sommelier uh, which now is just a very common thing I mean a uh, a very nice wine list is something that you'll see even at the uh the the truck stop restaurant you know like it's uh it's only a matter of time before for tea goes in the same direction
1: yeah you know it's it's interesting that you mentioned hospitality because uh, i I haven't thought about that personally in a very long time but as you mentioned it you know i remembered i had a business professor in college at the very end of like the very end of college in my class was uh my project in that class was a was a tea like a tea studio like a tea was sort of like i tried to i tried to make it like a like a tea bar mm-hmm. uh and uh he said you know you should really you know you should really put something like this is you should put this in a hotel so this shouldn't be freestanding you should put this in a hotel first that way you're attracting because i mentioned you know there's a mixture of health conscious uh people and tea enthusiasts and people from tea producing cultures who are familiar right and you want to get at that intersection. He said, that intersection's the hotel. <laughs> uh, and it's interesting that you mentioned that because uh, I, I, I think that that's very true. And of course, you have your own uh, tea studio now, at Let T-Lat T-Studio, mm-hmm. Uh that you, when, when did that open up? And I know it's by appointment only these days, right?
0: Yeah, it, it's always been, Um, you know, of course, if you're in the area and you stop by, we are on Yelp and have open hours on Yelp. If someone walks in, they're welcome. Uh, but if I'm busy, uh, I may not uh, have the time to do a full on tea tasting like what I like to do with somebody. So it may be one of those pretty fast in and out, let me prepare you one cup of tea, and if you want to buy tea, um, you know, type of retail experiences. But yeah, why we like the appointment is because if it's planned ahead, then uh, both Ree and I, uh, Ree is my business partner, Rhee Tulali. Both of us can manage our work schedule for that day so we can take the time out to really sit and listen, which is what we like to do. So uh, our T-Studio is located right off the Strip on Russell, which is the road on the south end of the Strip where the Mandalay Bay is, and um, Decatur, which is uh, west of the Strip. Uh, so I'm really not far it takes just five minutes from from the strip to get here we have a view of the city and uh, our office is located here uh, we have a literal media studio where we produce all of our photo shoots and media recordings and actually we, we record a lot of podcasts here too We we invite local podcasters to come in and record their stuff and Um, we host events here so in fact last night we had a really successful event it was a wine education event Uh, one of our friends uh, one of those leaders of the tea community I told you about uh, he has a past of being a wine sommelier and uh, he has a a personal cellar in a wine collection that he's been building since the start of his career and uh, now you know, he wants to do these education events where he can crack into those bottles and open up that education uh, to his community and our community. Um, and, you know, that's, that's really good. And this is all part of that, that puzzle of upping, you know, the game of tea and hospitality is that if that, uh, that education gets out there, um, it'll spread like wildfire. It's what it did for wine. So why not do it for tea? And, um, you know, tea appreciation has definitely been going much longer than wine appreciation uh, culturally. But wine appreciation and the marketing around wine appreciation is so much more developed, especially here in the United States, than tea ever has been. And so I really believe that we could tap into that education, that vocabulary, that understanding that people have around wine and then kind of parallel that to tea, you know? And well,
1: yeah. What would you like to see in like tea media? So as far as like the tea, like making tea cool, making tea interesting sort of the, the tea outreach program from a media perspective as somebody who like you know, or, you know has a studio, what would you like to see like in tea media, not just like tea media, like like what I'm doing or what TDB does, but like just in media in general, uh, what would you like to see happen in the next couple of years with T media to really get Who's, who's not talking about it that you'd love to hear talk about uh, single-origin tea?
0: I want to sit and have a gung-fu tea session with Snoop Dogg.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, drink tea every day, yes!
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, things like that. I, I, I really just want to see it be more mainstream and um, let people see that, that tea appreciation can be something that everybody does and It doesn't always have to be like that super hyper quality connoisseur appreciation. It's just kicking back and drinking a good cup of tea and enjoying it. And um, that helps direct trade tea. You know, I don't think that Snoop Dogg needs to be sitting there and talking about direct trade tea, but uh, I I just want to see him sitting there and enjoying enjoying it, even if he's enjoying some cannabis along with his Camellia Sinensis, which, by the way, are very great pairings. But... Um, I just, I, I would like to, to see, you know, average people and, and people that are influential, whatever, just enjoy it and appreciate it and feel good and, 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 and feel irie, you know, like have a heightened level of consciousness and just more peaceful and more happy. And how that affects direct trade is, um, it's all has to do with the intention of the product. You know, when the intention is really high, the tea tends to taste better, the tea tends to make you feel better, you know, versus it being something that uh, was made with the intention of being high quantity, um, a mass commodity product, which there's a reason why tea bags aren't exciting. There's a reason why, you know, you don't have people creating podcasts around dumping tea bags in water and talking about it, like... And and, and people that are talking connoisseur level of tea, in most cases, it is some form of direct trade. It may not be full transparency direct trade, but it's coming from a single place. And there was a single person with a very positive, good intention in in making that tea, Uh, making it with attention to detail in every step of the process so that they make the finest quality tea at the end of at the end of the day. And also a positive intention in how you prepare that tea and, and and brew that tea for whoever you're drinking it with. And I think, I think Snoop Dogg would be down. I think he'd be actually, I made a promise to one of the farmers that I work with that I would pour his tea for Snoop Dogg. So I, I, it'll happen one time, but um, yeah. And then as far as like the, the, the issues around direct trade, I would like to see some, some media uh, talking more about it. And you've seen it. Like, BBC has been doing some exposés on the treatment of workers in the states of Assam and Darjeeling. and But it tends to be, like, this shock and awe type of campaign. That...
1: Well, it's in a British cultural context, too, right? There's, like, well, what's behind the cup you've always loved, right? Like, Yeah. And then they go into the, yeah. like you said, shock and awe.
0: Yeah, and i don't think that that's necessarily the the best way to communicate that's never the best way to communicate because it, it just polarizes things when you do that like things could be should be communicated with honesty and uh i really like uh vice how vice um you know does their does their media and um that that's that's some place that i i'd like to do some more collaboration and bring up those issues and and let it come from the source like go to the source and interview the people that are actually there and um <clears throat> it's not sensationalizing it it's just saying the truth and and it might necessarily not be like oh this is bad we got to boycott all of this it's like no this is what's going on and you got to be a part of it you are if you're a tea drinker you are a part of it so be a part of it Um, You know, So much of the media, especially media that's controlled by the marketing powers, they of course don't want you a part of it. They they try to keep you as far away from it. And actually that was the lesson that I learned about my work as a food scientist when I was in the Peace Corps. that's, That's the problem. That's the whole issue of why I didn't feel comfortable working in the food industry. was because the current state of our food system in the Western world is to separate the producer as far away from the consumer as possible. And uh, I, I want to rebuild that. I think that we could fix a lot of our problems, including some of the secondary problems associated with our food industry, such as obesity and unhealthy relationship with consumerism. Uh, those types of things um, could be restored if we could just build a stronger relationship with, with the things that, that are produced that we consume.
1: Do you think it's possible to have the, I, I'm trying to think of, you know what, a lot of the people who are involved in agribusiness and generally this, this, the food system, global food system status quo, usually say to sort of defend the the this, this, this situation the way that it is. They say, we have so many people and we have been able to have such high global distribution and produce such high yields, high yields at lower prices that are, have no historical precedent. Uh, is do you think there's any way to keep that kind of high yield, low price for the you know for 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 everybody, and still not be alienated from the people who make your food, or do you think that that alienation is an inherent problem, is an inherent price you pay for high you know low cost, high yield, uh, food food, food products?
0: Yeah. Mm, uh,
1: i know we just got really deep we were just talking about snoop dog and
0: i <laughs> <laughs> it's um it's a tough question because no i mean yeah sure we could have transparency we could have a connection to the um producer that's possible so it's a yes and no type of answer where it is possible but in in my viewpoint of how things are going and my idea is if we are going to continue these high yields, low price things people are going to be eliminated from the equation. The labor, you know, it's not going to be people anymore. And We all we all see that. I mean, they're talking about uh, the McDonald's drive-thru is replaced by a robot now. Like, we don't need people for that anymore and it's cheaper just to put a robot there. So that's what's going to end up happening in our food too it's going to be all mechanized and um so sure if you want like a direct trade robot and you want to know who that robot was that made your food like that is possible but yeah it's it's not going to be i've made my people it's it, I, I think that that's going to be the big change that's going to happen it's going to have to happen in tea they're already talking about it like that's actually that's one reason why a lot of the um the tea producers in India and Africa are like really watching the U.S. grown tea industry because they believe that the U.S. tea growers are going to have to know how to make their tea fully mechanized because our labor costs are so high here. It's just not even feasible uh, to use human labor. So America is such an engineering uh, culture that they believe that you know, the american farmers are going to figure it out and then they'll just copy you know what, what 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 happens in the u.s
1: but do you think that you can really have a robot pick uh, i i mean i i think i know the answer to this question but like can a robot pick two leaves in a bud the way a person can uh, uh, at least in the near future i don't see that happening in the nearby like you can have cheap tea that's really recognized but part of the reason why people want to buy nice tea is because so much care and intentionality as you know as you were saying earlier really, really went into that and it can yeah yeah
0: my answer yeah um this uh style of tea mate it won't be good tea it won't be yeah there's a there's a really cool report I'll I'll send it to you in the email maybe when you put this podcast together you can you can include a link to it cuz it's it's very much related to all the stuff we're talking about but it's a yeah um, a, a study on the sustainability of the tea industry it's called T2030 have you ever heard of that
1: Hmm you know I don't think I have okay, I've I'll heard a lot of with- like about that kind of talk in the air but I haven't It's
0: probably like one of the most well thought out and well researched analysis on the sustainability of tea. And they pretty much they talked about the current issues going on. And a lot of it was the stuff that I've been talking about tonight. And then they also talk about what is the hypothetical situation of what the tea industry is going to look like in 2030. And realistically uh, came up with uh, four different scenarios and then decided and said, that the future is more than likely going to be some blend of these four different scenarios. And I'll tell you what, only one of them was a positive scenario that you would like. The other three are very bleak. And one of them was that 100% of tea production is going to go towards the production of tea extracts to make like supplements. And that oh. would be 100% mechanized. And it's not going to matter about the quality because we're not drinking the tea. We're just going to be extracting all the good stuff from it. Um, Yeah. It's pretty bleak.
1: Just put my brain in a jar right now. (laughs) I mean, you might as well. If, like, food is coming in capsules, just put my brain in a capsule because then at least it'll make sense. (laughs) Then you can dissolve that capsule in that fluid and I can just be, like, the Futurama heads in jars. like you gotta pair your body with your kind of food right human beings yeah <laughs> they should be taking pills for food
0: yeah i remember what like the jensen's that's how the jetsons that's how they used to eat food they would eat pills and that was such a cute little pop culture thing i remember from my childhood but now i think about it and i'm like oh my god no i i love to eat so much what how the hell anybody want to eat pills like no <laughs>
1: eating is so social and it's so integrated into people's cultural identity and with their family daily, multiple times a day ritual with the people they love and care about the most and work with and you know, we take people out on a romantic date to a restaurant or to get a drink, I wonder if at some point human beings will be like we want to eat our food because it's a social occasion, there's a lot of psychology that goes into eating food and having meals and you know, the Justin's don't have that and i wonder if at some point like human beings are just going to push back no matter what culture they're in be like no but we like to eat together
0: Mm -hmm. i think it's an important part i think it's everything is an important part of of who we are and i learned that when i was in the peace corps you know like i was living in a in a a community where infant mortality was 20 percent People were only eating one meal every other day with their family, but they were so darn happy, you know, because they had the things that they needed. Uh, They didn't have money. They didn't have credit. They didn't have a car. They didn't have a phone. Like, they just had their community, and they had the food that they made themselves, and they shared it with their community, and they would share their last grain of millet with their neighbor that needed it. And, um... I learned that that's what you need, you know, and that's what I'm preparing myself for. Like, you need seeds, you need soil, you need water, and you need the sun and people. And that's all you need in the, in the world. And I, I'm really focused on making sure that I have all of those things. And I want to help as many other people collect those things, too, and, and hold those things tight. Because um, we're we're almost on the brink of an unknown an unknown f- uh, major event that uh, what is, is the what it's going to be i don't know what it is but i mean it could be like something in the movies you know where everything's just gone You're, all the power is out and all the infrastructure that we've been relying up is gone and you better hope that you have those things that I just listed off, because you can do a, you can do a lot with those things, and and you know.
1: Well, in a, living in a living in a, living in a world where there are exponentially increasing sort of changes, right? You get more and more, not just technological change, but when you when you have technological change, you have social change as a as a consequence every single time. And so, in a world with an exponentially increasing new novelty and 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 uh, changes to efficiency and organizational distribution structures for commodities and people and food like people live and see so much change that yeah in the 70s alvin tolfer you coined the term like future shock and that was 40 years ago now where you're so surprised by the world you're living in but you but it's only been 20 years we might be people in our age group might be experiencing that kind of anxiety on a five-year scale as opposed to a 30 year scale or in the 19th century it was a 50 year scale and previous back in the renaissance it was a century long scale Uh, as it just gets more and more the snowball of history keeps going and going and going and going and we're like (gasps) holding on for for dear life and it is it does produce you know a a very legitimate concern and anxiety in people who have to live through it
0: I got no anxiety about it. Cause I got everything I need. I mean, unless that <laughs> event directly kills me, I'm going to be good. You know, I've got lots, yeah. lots of friends and lots of seeds and I know where the good soil is. I, uh, you know, so I'm not, I'm not worried about it. What what I am energized though is about sharing with other people and making sure that they're all prepared. Um, and, and also making decisions to help change the path that we're on you know like the most the most direct thing that i that i hear that really tells me that something has to happen within the next hundred years it just has to happen because you look at um the ocean acidification that is the one thing like climate change or whatever there's different opinions and different ideas and theories about how long you know what the effect of climate change is going to be but what does make sense and is is very definitive, like there's gonna be an endpoint of this is the ocean acidification. you look at the trend of the pH change of ocean water due to you know the carbon um, you know in the air from the stuff that we're doing, uh, it, it's going on a path where a hundred years from now, sea life will not be able to live around the islands of hawaii you think about that change and that's like wow things are going to be a lot different you know and who knows what it's going to be it could be a war you know like it could be people fighting over these you know these finite resources that that you know we're we're all building our lives upon um so you know the best thing that we can do we can't just stop it overnight we can't stop these things these things are already in motion um, there are consequences and emissions that are going out that are you know the effect from work that's been done years ago you know like hmm. like the the trash the trash island out out above Hawaii
1: right yeah there's a couple of them right they have a whole map of them now the yeah. Pacific. Specific Plastic Plastic Islands
0: Yeah Yeah so they say They say like the, the islands are The way The size it is right now It's huge And it's like Dense And it's filled with plastic But that's not even All the plastic That's in the world On its way there So like they say Oh well we can just pla- Ban plastic from today It's like well Even if we ban plastic All over the world Today That thing is still going to accumulate it's not like let's all just stop what we're doing right now and everything will fix like no we already did the damage it's already going so what are we going to do to prepare for what's going to happen and what can we do now what changes can we make in our behaviors now to reduce the impact and to um, extend the time of when we do you know make the world uninhabitable for people
1: so, um, since founding T-let, uh, you know, how, for the four or five, how many years have you been open? Four years? Five years?
0: It's almost five. Yeah, we started um, in May of, of
1: 2012.
0: So, almost five.
1: Wow. So, in those, that's awesome. That means that I was, I ordered from you, like, when you were less than a year old. I remember back when you had consumer, like, you, you could just order tea, mm-hmm. <laughs> back in like 2012. That's great. Uh, so over the last five years, um, like who are like the people you, know, you talked about? People helping each other. Who who are the people who are, like the who are the two or three or four or whatever you, whatever number strikes you? Who are the handful of people who have helped you out the most in accomplishing everything that's happened in the last sort of at Teela in the last five years?
0: Oh my goodness, I, I couldn't limit it to four. <laughs> <laughs> I really couldn't.
1: It's a good answer. <laughs>
0: I couldn't limit it to four. I mean, I guess I, I could prioritize, but I even hate doing that because everybody is playing such an important role in, in what we're doing. And um, yeah, I uh, this this makes me nervous, too. Uh,
1: Has your family been very supportive? Like, I, I'm looking for the Oscar type. Like, I want okay. to thank the Academy and my mom and my dog. Like,
0: <laughs> Well... <laughs> Yeah, my mom, uh, my parents, and my my brother, my sister, they have all been very supportive. You know, granted, it it does come with uh, a grain of um, judgment and uh, criticism, which is necessary. You know, you always need some criticism, and you always need somebody saying, hey, you know, this kind of sucks. Why are you doing this Um, uh, to help, you know, give you another perspective? And my family has definitely been good at that. But, um, you know, my brother has has been a really great support. Uh, and, you know, he he works with me uh, mm-hmm. uh, almost from the beginning. From uh, five months after I started the company, we took our first venture capital investment from Silicon Valley, and uh, I needed to build a team. And so I brought him on to to help with the marketing and all of the media. He's a filmmaker. Uh, so actually all of the videos that are on our website, and we have several more, not even several, hundreds of, and hundreds and hundreds of hours more of video that's been captured from all the places that we've traveled to and uh he quit his job to join me and you know kind of put his life on hold and took a risk to learn about tea and to work with tea he had no experience with tea prior and I'm um, really grateful for that and you know I feel like this experience has has benefited him you know not financially by any means but has benefited him and uh, uh, feeling what, it, what it's like to run your own business and to work on your own terms and to follow your dreams and now he's following his dreams even in projects outside of tea which is great um, you know someone else that I absolutely have to uh, give thanks to and unfortunately she's sitting right next to me so it's a little bit embarrassing to do this but um, Reed Tulali uh, who I believe you met
1: uh, Reese's been yeah. sitting next to you this entire time. Not
0: the entire time, but Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> Why no yeah, when you were talking badly about her, she wasn't here. Don't worry about that. What? It's like...
1: Oh <laughs> <laughs> If I had known she was around I would like if she had any you know anything to say about anything we've been talking about, I'd love to hear what she had to say about it. <laughs>
0: uh best <laughs> story yeah she was out in the dust storm doing our our last uh our last minute uh post office run she just she just walked in about five minutes ago it's like oh,
1: okay she kind of
0: walked in like right when you were asking me that question so
1: i <laughs> <laughs> well i was fully expecting her to be named because she's been she's been with the she's been uh a, a partner of yours for so long you know i i figured she she must be doing something very very helpful to continue to be i mean i assume because she's been super helpful when i met her at the uh at the festival and was great to talk to you so
0: yeah yeah no she, she she'd be on the list uh, even if she wasn't sitting right here i, I still would have I, I still would have mentioned her but yeah we've been working for uh, uh officially she's been a member of the company for three years but uh we've actually been friends since when i first moved to las vegas and funny story we met on instagram when I relocated to Las Vegas the first day I posted onto Instagram a fortune cookie that came, you know, at my lunch that said, you know, all of your bad fortune is gonna go away and you're on to a bright future and I posted that as my Instagram for T Let and she'd been a follower of T Let because she was a tea enthusiast and she was kind of on her own. You know, a rogue uh, tea enthusiast here in Las Vegas and I get a message from her saying, You like tea, I like tea, you're in Las Vegas, we should meet And uh I do that often. Actually that happens a lot on Instagram where where we meet people, um, in real life, you know, from connections and, and, and people we've been following through social media and so uh I tried to arrange a meeting at a um tea house. That's usually where we like to meet is some place to drink tea and she says, Oh, and there's no tea house in Vegas, sorry, we we, we should meet for ramen and yeah we um stopped uh, in Chinatown for ramen and talked about tea she was very young she was just 20 years old at the time still in college and I was just like really surprised I, I shouldn't be so surprised because tea does does you know make people extremely curious and and excited uh but yeah I was surprised that she was so young and so intuitive about tea and really without the guidance because usually you have the guidance of like a, a tea shop owner or somebody locally that will sit for tea with you and 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 get you excited about it but she kind of just did it on her own and was buying tea online she'd bought tea from almost every online vendor and uh knew a lot about tea and so i said you know maybe you can help me uh taste some samples and she said, oh yeah of course free tea oh, yeah, i'll come over and drink tea so that's how our friendship started you know, new samples would come in from new farmers that we were vetting, and um, you know, the more perspectives you have on a tasting, the better it is. So she'd come over, and you know, we'd cook dinner and um, and drink tea and talk tea. And, um, and one of my f- favorite memories with Rhee is one of our first tea tastings we did, and it was like a we used to do these collaborative tea tastings with Tony Gabley and Jason Walker. I'd send them out the tea samples and then we'd do a Google Hangout together and we'd drink the tea together and talk about it. And and this was like Ree's first official tea tasting with us. And she was on camera with me and she was quiet most of the tasting. Uh, Tony and Jason were doing most of the talking. They were definitely much more experienced with communicating tasting notes on camera. So, you know, they were just flowing. And um, Ree disagreed with one of the things that Jason had to say. And she was really fast and she was very well articulated and she just snapped back and said her thing. And I just looked back at her and I'm like, wow, she's a whip. (laughs) (laughs) And it's good, you know, you need that, you know, especially in the realm that we work in, which are like, you know, uh, similar to what you say in the wine world, like new world teas. You know, there's not a lot of established um, you know, understanding and, and tasting notes around a lot of the teas that we work with. So if you're going to be tasting, you, you need to be bold and, and willing to disagree with the status quo and say something new. Um, so, uh, yeah, so now, um, Ree's full time on with us. She's, you know, a partner in the business and she's, you know, considered a founding member of, of what we're doing. And uh, we travel together, and a lot of the travel that we do throughout the U.S. to go to tea festivals and whatnot, she joins me, and, you know, now she gives her own presentations and tasting sessions at these tea events, and... We travel to source together, and um, she manages all of our accounts, like our uh, sales activities. So, um, and you know, it's not like your typical door-to-door salesman with her uh, duffel bag of teas and trying to push her teas to every store we walk into. Uh, Our sales is very, very high touch. Um, you know, most of our leads come into us because people find us on the internet. They're curious about what we're doing. They want to do direct trade. Sometimes they believe what we do is too good to be true. There's no way that we have transparency in, in, in our wholesale business. Um, and, and then also, we do work with a lot of accounts that are changing their business mm-hmm. method, their business model, to uh, sourcing higher priced, higher quality tea and selling at a higher price. But you can't just do that. You can't, you can't just put a higher price on your shelf the day after you were selling the cheaper tea. So you have to do a lot of education. And so Reese spends a lot of time communicating with these businesses and um, guiding them in their education. And, you know, it's crazy. Sometimes these are businesses, tea businesses, that have been running for over 10 years. And these business owners have never really developed their tea education uh, for quality tea because for the longest time, the thing the market wanted and what kept a business alive was flavored teas. And the marketing around that was not about education. It was about, um, you know, the fruity flavors, like really sexy, inviting smells and nice branding and packaging. Um, so, yeah I'm really grateful to have her help on that. Um, you know I, I guess if I could like bunch up you know all of the tea farmers that that have been working with me, especially since day one, you know uh, we we currently are are distributing on behalf of over 30 tea farmers. Uh, when I first started uh, my work before tealed, I, I was working in Japan and I helped founded a nonprofit called the International Tea Farms Alliance which failed the non-profit failed because there was no money to motivate it to keep going and and that was the whole idea behind tea let and the farmers told me hey well why don't you go back to the u.s. and build a for-profit business that could distribute our tea for us um again sitting and listening and and they told me what to do and i just go do it but um uh you know th- those ten farmers that were in that original network. You know we're still working with them, and they're still believing in what we're doing, and and having the patience with it. You know, because like it's one thing to say, okay, yeah, your local buyers are gonna pay five dollars. I'll pay you fifty dollars, and they're like, yeah, let's do it, awesome, more money. But then I tell them, oh, but I can only buy ten kilos right now. I'm sorry. Um, I can only give you, you know, this much. My business is not big enough yet. And, you know, I go the next year to buy and business has grown a little bit, but not that much. And the next year, it's grown a little bit more. And they continue to have the patience with us to understand that it's taking time for what we're doing. And that, you know, we're not just going to overnight find these huge Lipton buyers that are going to buy all their tea at Mass and and solve all of their problems um so i'm really grateful to to have that line of communication with the growers and we do a lot of very unconventional things as far as business with these growers like for instance when i was first starting actually when we first launched the wholesale business when we converted from selling direct to consumer like what you bought uh, to doing wholesale um, with wholesale these businesses expect the tea to be in the United States already, and they expect you to be able to ship it to them within three days because they're running a business, they ran out, they need it now. So I couldn't, like, just drop drop ship everything from Asia. I couldn't just uh, sell it, you know, as orders came in for me. I would need to have the inventory on hand before I launched. And that's a very high cost, you know, to have at least 20 kilos of every tea on hand here in the
1: united states that's going to be very high cost
0: very high cost you know so i had an open discussion with all the growers and i said here's the situation like the opportunity for us is going to be in this wholesale but i don't have the money to buy all this tea from you right now so what do you think and they said oh well we can do consignment don't worry we'll send you the tea up front Uh, if if you can pay for the shipping up front that would be great But, you know, let us know how it sells and you can pay us back when it sells. That is completely unheard of in the tea industry. It never happens, ever, ever. Like, farmers always get paid up front or suppliers always get paid up front. No one ever does consignment. Um, But, you know, these farmers, you know, took a risk and and were patient enough uh, to do it because they believed in what what we were doing. And, um, yeah, I'm extremely grateful to every single one of them.
1: That's an awesome story. That just warms my heart to hear that. That sounds just like just a great, that's a great story of just, you know, human beings giving each other the benefit of the doubt and and doing business based on their relationships, right? Their relationship with you and your relationship with them, Mm -hmm. as opposed to just looking at everything as, you know, as numbers.
0: Yeah. I mean, our business has changed a lot now that we are, um, you know, going and we have secure buyers like, when we make an order to a farmer, we know we're going to sell it like cuz we already have the buyers waiting for it. So, we do pay up front now. Most of the growers we we pay up front for the tea, but in the beginning it was absolutely necessary. There was no way that I could have got this up and running without without their willingness to do consignment.
1: Hmm. So, I have one more question for you, Elise. We've had such a great conversation and I really want to thank you so much for uh uh talking with me and i think that this has turned out so well you've talked about everything that i I thought i wanted to hear you uh, have an opinion on and even more Uh, i do have one really important question this is the most important one i've ever asked uh how many degrees of separation do you think are between you and snoop dogg like how many phone calls do you need to make to get him to hang out with you uh
0: two texts one phone call and a big blunt i think that's (laughs) <laughs> That's
1: it. <laughs> oh, awesome! Oh, great! Thank you so much for, like I said, thanks so much for for being for being on. Uh, it's just been super fun. We have talked about the the really cool, uh, detailed stuff that I really want to get out there. That I want, you know, that I want the podcast to be there to 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 have to, to be a a resource for to have, to have stuff out there that have.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for having having me and uh. I look forward to sharing this information and like I said before like the most important task that I have is not selling stuff it's not becoming an expert on thing. my most important task is sitting and listening. So, you know, I, I really want to let your listeners know that um, my door is always open. I love hearing people's passion for tea. It helps, you know, like every email that I receive is important. So, um, you know, if, if, if you're interested in tea and like want to get some ideas of how you could get started in the industry or whatever, you know, please feel free to, to email me um, or visit us here in the Tea studio here in Las Vegas. Uh, my email is Elise, E-L-Y-S-E, at T-L-E-T dot com. Email me anytime. Um, come to our office if you're ever in Vegas. Um, you can just email me to set it up or you can just show up. Hopefully I'm here. I do, you know, run around a lot, but um always happy to make new friends and help people uh, learn more about tea and learn how they can get involved too. This is a group effort. We all, we all need to, to do something about it. And I know that I have a lot of resources and a lot of friends that can help.